Hi, I'm Bruce Valanche, and you are listening to the Fandom Squad Podcast. You are now entering the Fandom Squad Podcast. Enjoy the madness. Hey everyone, this is going to be another episode of the Phantom Squad podcast. My guest this week is the amazing Hollywood legend, Bruce Falanche. How's it going? What can I say? Legends. Legends are us. He's a legend. Homer's a legend. Yes. Bacon's a legend. (laughs) Maybe a legacy. Not even. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway. So how are you? I'm good. (laughs) So yeah, so... uh, just to get started, so how did you get into the the industry? I know you started as a stand-up. How did you get into the writer side of things? Well, actually, I wasn't. A, I was a child actor. Oh, but, yes, but I was never a child star, or we'd be having this conversation in rehab. Yes, they don't do well. But I was uh, a child actor, and I always i I grew out of my uh, my I grew out of my parts. <laughs> Sounds porn, doesn't it? <laughs> I grew out of my. Pro- I was. I had. I was. I had a deep voice, and I was heavy, and I was. Uh, uh, I, I was. I was uh, auditioning. I was grew up in New Jersey and New York, and I was auditioning opposite actors who were like authentically the age that I was trying to play, which I wasn't. And so I started writing. I found I had a knack for it. My parents encouraged it because they, you know, they were afraid. You know, you, you can't make any money in the theater. And they said newspapers will never die. <laughs> what did they? So I got. I went to college and I got a degree in journalism and theater. And I went to work for the Chicago Tribune and started writing about what I knew, which was show business, because I'd been in it since I was a kid. And uh, I met Bette Midler in Chicago. She was just starting out and uh, began writing for her. And I began collecting people I was writing for. And so, uh, and and then every night I would uh, go and love, there was a club in Chicago called Punchinello's, which was kind of like an after theater sort of club. Like, you know, they would float in around 11 o'clock and I would get up at midnight and do the news of the day, like weekend update, basically. Uh, with my own spin on it, and so that was that was as far as I got into stand-up because I, I uh, after five years of writing for the paper, I I came out here to L.A. to write a television show and I stayed, and uh, and then so then I was basically I was acting and and writing but but more writing, and uh, occasionally I would I would I gave myself an act. What happened was there were so many so many friends were dying and. You know they were um, they're dying of AIDS and it was uh, they were gay and a lot of people back then were they were they were out to their friends and uh, but they were closeted to the family back home in Indiana so when they died the family would swoop down and they would discover all these things about them and they would take the body back and bury it and have a funeral but all the people who were really important in this person's life were left holding a bag. So we had a, a memorial of our own. We called them celebrations, and I started emceeing those. And as a result, people said, oh, "You you should you know do a, a stand up because you're you know, you're funny. You keep these things afloat." And I, I thought, my God, AIDS kickstarted my stand up career. How will that? <laughs> what are the optics of that? But I eventually let go of it, and I said, "Okay, I'm going to give myself an act." And uh, and so I started doing it. But I was never like a club comic, you know. I wasn't in. 
I mean, I, I wrote for a lot of club comics and I hung around, but I never really, I felt that I, um, I was, you know, too, uh, too different. I mean, I didn't have that energy that club comics have. And I told stories basically about stuff I had done and it was a whole different thing. So uh, my, I never really had, I call it sit down, not stand up. But, um, and that it all kind of happened at the same time. And then after 20 years of that, they came to me with Hollywood Squares and said, would you be the head writer and make it, and you know, we want it to be funnier, more funny than game show. And I, I, I said, yes. And Whoopi said, well, he should be the center square. He should be, he should host the show. She was a center square. And I'd written for, with her for years. And so they tested me. And it was like, and this is for the win, Louise. And, <laughs> well, you're not exactly what we are looking for in the host. You know, this was before RuPaul's Drag Race. Yes. <laughs> they said, uh, you know, you're a little, you're a little uh, left of center. So they put me left of center. They put me next to Whoopi, to the left of Whoopi, if that's possible. And I, for for about six years, I was there. Uh, and when you're on television every night, you become famous, and you know, people ask you to write a book and. All sorts of things happen. I went, I did hairspray on Broadway. I, I shaved my beard and I was a mother for two years and I toured the country. And, um, and so it goes, you know, it's been 20 years since that. So that's basically the fable <laughs> awesome, of my awesome. legend. And, yes. and, you know, and, and I mean, I wrote a lot, of, you know, 25 Oscar shows and I'm the EGOT of award show writers and these Grammys, Oscars, Tony's, I've written them all. Right. Oh, yeah. So to them, you were a little too eccentric than what they were looking for. <laughs> uh, at the time, yes, they thought, um, well, you know, they wanted it to be they wanted it to be funny, but they wanted it to, to resonate as a real live game show that was not a joke. That, and so we had Tom Bergeron, who, you know, was brilliant. Oh, yes. The whole career in that. But he was, you know, we were lucky to get him. He's ter- he's a great guy, and but he was terrific in, in the role, and the show was a great success. You know, until they destroyed it, it was great. Yes. So, how did you go from that or before that? How did you get involved with Paul Lynn? Paul. Well, one of the the many shows I was well, I was writing Donnie and Marie. That was one of the shows. Donnie and Marie, the Osmonds, before you were born. I'm guessing. Yes. <laughs> had a, a variety show on Friday nights, and uh, I was one of the writers, and Paul who it was, of course, a, a, a Hollywood Center Square of fame, um, was a regular on the Donnie Marie show. It was, it was actually, they were paying him off for a sitcom that didn't work. And I was writing a lot of his material on Donnie and Marie, which was not as as edgy as his Hollywood Square stuff because it was a family, a real family show. And um, But it was, you know, it was Paul. I mean, there was no way you could get around, you know, Paul being edgy. And we would uh, finish uh, Donnie and Marie, and he would say, come with me to Squares, I haven't got shit. And we would <laughs> ride over the hill to NBC and uh, and write jokes. And so I was writing for him then. And then at that same time, uh, he part of his deal at ABC was uh, he got a bunch of specials. And one of them was the legendary Paul Lind Halloween special, because the idea, Paul Lind was on Bewitched playing Uncle Arthur. He was a member of the Coven. So the idea of Paul of being a witch at Halloween was not that remote an idea because yes. people had seen him on Bewitched for, for a couple of years. So we made him a big old witch on uh, on Bewitched. And, and his uh, he, his sisters, his sister was the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz. 
and she showed up, Margaret Hamilton, the original Wicked Witch. And oh, Witchy, amazing. Witchy Pooh from H.R. Puffin Stuff, which was a, a Saturday morning kid show. Oh, I love H.R. Puffin so, Stuff so with, with Marty well, you know, and all of those yeah. guys. So, so Witchy Pooh and, uh, and the Wicked Witch were his sisters, and that was their coven, and they were gathering for Halloween. And they had all kinds of strange people there, including Kiss, of all people. Oh, my god! Making their first network television appearance, which was very, very odd. I think my dad told me about it. He's, he's one of the original Kiss Army members. I just found oh, really? it at, at my grandma's. I found his little pamphlet where it's like, for $5, you get the belt buckle, the album, and you get, a, I think, another a pin or something. And I was like five dollars he's like son five dollars in 1972 wow. was like that was a lot of it money was, <laughs> well the fan club and i guess they recall the kiss army they were there and uh the shocking thing to us was that the the guy who ran the fan club who was quite young was ringo Starr's son oh awesome. and the idea that. that 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 ringo was old enough to have a grown son and that we of course were old enough to be older than the grown son, uh, <laughs> alarmed a lot of people. This was like 1977, 78, something like that. So it was uh, it was uh, weird. And of course, that was perfect that Ringo's kid was the, was the head of the Kiss fan club. I mean, yeah. Yes. Now, I know there's a lot out there. If you can tell, do you have any Paul Lynn horror stories or any moments of being with him that just made you go, oh my God, that was... Oh, hilarious a lot, moment. <laughs> a lot. Because, because he would, you know, he would get, he was brilliant on one drink, but on two drinks, he became the Nazi high command and he hated everybody. He hated, it's the Jews, it's the blacks, it's the, it's the Puerto Ricans. I mean, he was just, yeah, Mexico. I mean, he just was awful. He would go off on, on people. And then there was a famous story, which actually is true. Well, the, um, the Osmonds, and for the last year of the show, last couple of years, I think, they moved it. They built a studio in Utah where they were from because they were devout Mormons. And the, uh, the studio was in a, uh, uh, Provo. It was actually in a town called Orem, which is next to Provo. And we used to say Orem is what you cannot do in Provo. So the we would fly up there every week and uh, do the show. And the writers would fly up on Monday and do the table read and then fly back. But occasionally, one of us had to stay to to uh, fix things. And Paul was up there for the week because he was rehearsing numbers and sketches and all that. And of course, if I was up there, he would come pounding on my door at night and say, let's go out, let's get laid. And we would go to, uh, we'd go out and he, uh, he closed every gay bar uh, in Salt Lake City, both of them at the time. And they had to send the Osmond police, the Osmo fuzz uh, to, to come and bail him out, and he was in, always in trouble. And the, the, the joke of it was, and then it was yeah, very, very Mormon. Salt Lake City now has a big gay population. There's a whole district called Marmalade, which is bizarre. It's named after a fruit product that is the, the, that is the gay neighborhood. So, um, uh, but there's a famous story about him uh, flying on Western Airlines, which was the uh, based in Denver and LA, and they flew the nonstop to Salt Lake. And uh, he would get very drunk on the plane. And uh, there was a, a crying baby on the plane. And he got fed up and he staggered down the aisle to the, the lady and she would, she had the baby he was crying. And she looked up and she, she looked at him, she recognized him, you know, and he and gave him a big smile. And he walked over and said, lady, 
Either you shut that baby up or I fuck it. <laughs> oh my and, God. Yeah. And, um, and it was like, you know, she was looking at like this Uncle Arthur from Bewitched. <laughs> and so he was, uh, when the plane landed, he was informed that he was no longer welcome on Western Airlines. <laughs> Which, which was subsequently bought by Delta, which is why Delta has flies into Salt Lake City. It's a big hub. Oh, my but, gosh. Uh, uh, but but I, I don't know if Delta honored Western's commitment. <laughs> <laughs> and it may be one of the things that brought Western down. Who knows? But, uh, you know, Paul enjoyed a beverage, and, uh, and he was not good on, you know, you had to catch him before it really, before... Yeah, while Dr. Jekyll was still in the building before Mr. Hyde showed up. Yes, yes. I, I think I've heard that story on Gilbert Govery's podcast before because I think he asked somebody about it. I think, well, Alec Mappa tells it uh, in his show and somebody else tells it. I mean, it's gotten around, but I was there when that actually happened. I mean, I am, I am there to verify the oh, fact. That is amazing. <laughs> I was not on the plane, but I was in, in, this, in the orbit when it happened. Oh, my gosh. Um, and a lot of people, it's become one of those things that, you know, a, a story that people repeat. Yes. So for you, how does, what is the difference between writing for like a sitcom versus writing for an award show? What is the the difference in the dynamics for something like that? Well, a sitcom, you're writing uh, 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 for a show that's already that's uh, settled. I mean, uh, it's, it's fictional. There are characters, even if the character is based on the, the the performer like Roseanne or Seinfeld or uh, Tim Allen shows or Ray Romano show, um, you're still writing for a character that is there and all the other actors, the, the other characters, they're all characters and there's a situation and you're writing to that. When you're writing an award show, you most of the people who are coming out there uh, don't do an evening at Carnegie Hall. You know, the, there are people, the stand-ups are people like Billy Crystal and Whoopi, and they they are, they have a stage persona that they that they use when they are on stage, uh, or they have characters who they play, on, and, they, and they incorporate that. But a lot of actors, like, you know, when Mel, when Johnny Depp comes out, or, or Keanu Reeves, or Michelle Pfeiffer, they don't have a character to play. They've, they've never come up with one. They haven't had to. I mean, they're real, they're genuine actors and that's, that's what they do. So you have to come up with something for them to do, to project some kind of personality. Uh, and uh, generally the way you do it is you deal with the task at hand. So if they're presenting an award for art direction, you find something they can say about art direction that makes sense. Maybe referencing uh, something, some of their work, you know, and, but it's difficult because they're not used to this. You know, they, they are used to being handled a script and a character and they can, you know, figure out what to play. That's why so many times when you see them on talk shows, you know, they're like kind of lost. I mean, what they do on talk shows is there's a, a segment producer calls them uh, earlier in the week to, to, to find out what they can talk about that they'll be comfortable with and, and to try to like pull stories out of them. So, so when Jimmy Kimmel says, but... I understand you were on a plane the other day and Paul Lynde came up, you know, whatever this, this yeah. story is going to be, but it's, it's, they know they, they've been cued in to uh, tell this thing that they've already rehearsed with the, uh, 
with the uh, the producer. And uh, most of the time when those people are on uh, shows, they're there to promote a specific project. So they, they come armed with things that they have been given about the project. I mean, I watched uh, Tom Hiddleston last night, was on Jimmy Kimmel, and uh, uh, he was plugging this, this new series he has called the, Ex the Essex Serpent. But all uh, Jimmy wanted to talk about was Loki. And every time he mentioned Loki, there were tears and screams and carrying on. So, of course, he has a trove of Loki stories because he already did the circuit when Loki came on. Yes. Just, you know, could repeat the Loki stories. And he had to actually, Jimmy had to actually kind of force him to talk about this movie that he was familiar with. <laughs> it's, it's an Apple series, I think, The Essex Serpent, and uh, which was funny. I mean, you know, it was an interesting example of how it works. Because, you know, Tom Hiddleston is not headlining in Vegas, you know. Yes. He's an actor. <laughs> and, of course, all they really want to say is, what's it like fucking Taylor Swift? That's what everybody really wants yeah. to ask. <laughs> Fortunately, it's just impolite. Yes. <laughs> if you want to know what it's like, she's probably written a song about it. So you could probably find it there. You just have to figure out who she's talking about. Yes. <laughs> because you know, no, because no, no ex-lovers remains untouched in her vocabulary. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Because after them all, yeah. Now I definitely have to ask because I know a lot of my listeners here are more on the big geeky side of things. So uh, you have to definitely tell me the story of how the the Star Wars special came about and how inebriated all of you guys were while writing it. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I've told the story many times, and as a result, I get I see things online saying Valance, who admits to copious drug abuse, and, um, <laughs> but I don't admit to any such thing. I, I, I embroider. I mean, it was the seventies, and as I've said many times, if you remember the seventies, you weren't there because <laughs> we were all kind of like half baked. We were all half assed, but we were also half baked, and um, and a lot of a lot of the things. Uh, it was not that consequential. And I, I say that because a lot of people who are uh, Star Wars fanatics are very mad about that show. And when I tell them that, well, Star Wars was not that big a deal at the time. It was a big hit summer movie. And uh, but there hadn't been those kinds of franchise pictures. And it kind of started that. Uh, and it was only the one movie that was out. This was a year later, a year and change later. And uh, he was about to start shooting The Empire Strikes Back. So he didn't have a canon yet. But what happened was he did this as a kind of promotional tool to keep the Star Wars idea on, on the bubble, to keep it you know, stirring. And uh, he had six movies. He told me he had 10 stories he'd written and six of them were going to be movies. And he eventually made six. And the other four he sold off into different things. And this one idea he sold to CBS as a special to kind of promote the thing. And it was a musical. Uh, and it was, it, was, uh, uh, it was about the Wookiees. And the, the funny thing was, I think that George, two things. I don't think George knew much about variety television. Uh, I think uh, he really thought he was giving them an original musical and that it was going to be like a musical like Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, like that kind of a musical. And, however, if he really did think that, I don't know why he sold them the story that featured the Wookiees, 
who are characters who cannot sing and cannot dance and can barely move in those outfits and who don't speak in any known language. They sound like fat people having orgasms. <laughs> Trust me. I so it, it was... Uh, it was it was crazy and a lot of people said well this is another one of these ridiculous specials that they'll load up with stars and 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 so we went to work trying to take this story and his characters and and bring in the required elements from cbs the the stars and the production numbers etc cetera, etc cetera. and of course everything that we did in that regard bastardized what they were doing but of course the whole show looked way cheap compared to what the movies were like the movies were you know were beautifully done. So uh, it came and went, you know, and people, still, people thought it was a joke and they thought it was over Thanksgiving holiday sort of. And they said, well, this is kind of fun. This is really stupid. It was no better or worse than a lot of other crap that was being, uh, you know, churned out by the very same people. And, but in the, what happened was he made the first three movies and then the internet came in. Well, first of all, a generation grew up watching those three movies on VHS and Betamax and the, the original format of VCR. And then the internet came in. And by that time, Star Wars had become the uh, Scientology of the nerds. Yes. You know, it was a religion. And this they discovered this special on the internet. And they were staggered and betrayed. And they said, George, how could you do this? And he got scared because uh, they, they were coming after him. And uh, he tried to he tried to get bury every copy and burn and all. Of course, they they survived. But but he freaked out and disowned it and all that kind of stuff. And then the the heat went off of it because he then started making Star Wars movies again. But every time he does a Star Wars movie, it comes back. It comes back to the point that, I mean, I don't know, he's done, what, five, six, seven movies later, and uh, it keeps showing up. And finally, he had, uh, when, uh, when Disney, who acquired his company and now owns Star Wars, when Disney uh, uh, said, let's do a, a, a Star Wars holiday special with Lego, uh, he said, okay, fine. And they, they even referenced the old show. And the Lego thing, I don't know if you saw it, but it was hilarious because they had the, 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 the Daisy Ridley Lego looked like Rosie O'Donnell. It was very weird. Oh, yes. But they do reference <laughs> the show and they reference Life Day, which is the holiday that George came up with in the original special. That was what the Wookiees were doing. The Wookiees were, they, they had to get, Chewbacca had to get home to his home planet for Life Day. So he and Han Solo and Leia are in the Millennium Falcon racing across the galaxy. Uh, to get in time, back in time for the Wookiee, for the Wookiee holiday, for Life Day. And they do. And Carrie got to sing some simpering Life Day song at the end of the thing. I mean, I looked at it recently because I'm writing a book about all of this. Oh, and, awesome. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely, once you get that, I'll put the links in the it show is, notes. It's, it's, uh, it's called, it seemed like a bad idea at the time. Good title. <laughs> the title. <laughs> And there's other, the opening chapter is all all about Star Wars, and uh, but in in detail, in in forensic detail, <laughs> we I pick apart the entire show, and my my contributions to it. You know, I, I and I was not alone. I had collaborators, I had partners, and George was was with us at the beginning, and he he booked early. He he saw I think he saw the, 
the 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 hieroglyphics on the wall, and he got <laughs> he got he ran back to Marin, but he 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 was there. He was called a few times, and uh, but he he wanted to get it. He didn't want. He didn't want to get any of it on it. <laughs> oh yeah, I've always told somebody because I'm like I know some of the new films get hate, and I'm like, if you're a true Star Wars fan or part of this Star Wars religion, like you have to watch the holiday special. It is a rite of passage. Yeah, so I told I my girlfriend, I was like, you're getting me into horror movies. I'm getting you into sci-fi. I was like, I know you know the Star Wars franchise. I'm gonna show you. You're gonna have to sit with me through this entire hour of a special. <laughs> I was like, it's gonna hurt. But trust me, you're going to know true pain afterwards. Now, I have to ask as well, when people like, you know, Harvey Corman and B. Arthur, did either of those, which are known as comedy legends, did either of them have any input to the the characters that they portrayed in the special? Or was it sort of already written for them? Uh, uh, it was written, but Har they're both geniuses. Uh, Harvey was... Uh, he loved he had to play several different characters he did julia child as an alien with yes first, first we take a leak let's make a leak soup uh and um so he he had the script and then he embroidered as he went along he improvised he had one he there's one moment that's absolutely brilliant really good i mean it's, it, it rises above the whole show where he is a robot and the and the robot's breaking down and he alternates between uh, being a functioning robot and like a kind of a, you know, like a, a, I had to say, like a robot with Alzheimer's. I mean, a robot because it's, and it's just because there's a loose screw or something, but he physically goes from being these two different individuals. And of course it's just him. Oh, it, I it, thought that was an editing. Is that where he's doing the little manual no, thing? He's doing all that stuff. He's really. It's oh, really that cool. is amazing. I always thought it was an editing thing that it was just kind of chopped. That is amazing. No, he he was amazing. Now B only B was Maud at the time, which was a big TV show. This is way before Golden Girls. Yes, but she had come from Broadway, and uh, she wanted to sing. Nobody ever let her sing, so. Uh, uh, she said she'd do it if she could sing, and she had this uh, Kurt Vile Bertolt Brecht song that she wanted to do, the Alabama song. You may know it. Frank Zappa uh, yes. and the Mothers of Invention did it on an album called Weasels Ripped My Flesh. <laughs> oh, love <laughs> Frank Zappa. Love Zappa. It's Zappa. And it's Zappa, he's shaving with a weasel. He's like pulling. Yes. Don't, don't <laughs> it. He was heavily, I'm sure he was as influenced as we all were at the time. Oh, yeah, there's the famous toilet picture of him with the top hat. Yeah. And everything. <laughs> uh, so he and and it's a great song, but uh, the Bertolt Brecht estate didn't think that they that Bertolt Brecht wrote the song so that uh, she could sing it to a bunch of aliens in, a, in the cantina. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Ken and Mitzi Welch, who were uh, uh, staff writers on the Carol Burnett show and wrote a lot of special material for Carol, parodies of Hollywood movies and things like that. They, and they were very musical. They wrote a song which kind of aped this, this Alabama song. And which was all kind of like, those were the days, my friends, we thought that, that kind of a song. Yes. And, and B got to sing it. And that was the whole reason she did the thing so she could sing. And it was very dramatic the way she did it. It was hilarious because she was surrounded by, by all these aliens. You yes, know. yes. And they were kind of looking at it through all their 17 eyes. And, you know, <laughs> so strange. Oh, yes. Now, so how did you get involved in the, with the Brady Bunch and the Brady Bunch special? Because I know, did you work on the series or was it just the special that they brought you in for? 
it it was another series actually there was a uh the brady bunch uh series was done and uh there were many many uh um variations on it there were the the brady kids cartoon show and i mean the, the first actual spin-off was the brady bunch variety hour and that came from fred silverman who was running abc and who would put donnie and marie on the air he picked them out of the osmond family and they didn't want marie to work they wanted marie to be a good mormon housewife but she was talented so fred said they should be a team and so they became a team and they had a variety show ted uh, fred believed in teams and so he thought the Partridge family, which was also defunct, but um, he thought, but in the Partridge family were actually a, a, a family, a, a show business family that toured in a bus, if you, if you know anything about it. Oh, yes. Or remember the Partridge family. And Shirley Jones uh, was the mother, and David Cassidy and Susan Day were the, the, the hot kids. And so the idea was the Partridge family would do a show about being the Partridge family and having a television show, and they they passed. So he said, "Well, the Brady Bunch, which was the other half the other half hour in that hour of the Brady Bunch and the Partridge family on Friday nights on ABC." Uh, so he went to the Brady Bunch, and the Brady kids had an act that they used to take. They used to play state fairs and things, and uh, so they were all singing and dancing. And it didn't take much to get Florence and Bob read back in the fold uh, because Florence was a Broadway musical star and she wanted to stay in LA and raise she had four kids she wanted to raise and Bob Reed kind of who, who hated the fact that he was now a, a sitcom dad he was a ser serious actor but he leaned into his comedy side and thought okay I'll try it and he of course could not sing or dance and that was one of the standing jokes of the show but it was a limited series because we, uh, Fred bought three uh, different, sh three shows and showed them on what was called a wheel. So every third week we would be on. And the other two shows were The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, the two mysteries, uh, which have all, but Hardy Boys I don't think has been rebooted. Hardy Boys was a hit. Nancy oh, yeah. Drew got rebooted uh, onto, on the CW many many years later but um so uh every third week the brady bunch was on so we only did nine of them we did the, the pilot and eight others because that by the time we aired all of those the season was over you know and we were in some summer reruns so um so it was i guess it was a limited series is what you could say because it, it didn't get picked up because the numbers were, were terrible and we were opposite 60 minutes for christ's sake yes I mean, we were, up, we were up until 60 Minutes and The Wonderful World of Disney. Ooh, that's a good, I love which that Which at the time, you know, this before Disney bought ABC, it was, they were on NBC. And uh, so we were opposite those two shows, which were both powerhouses in their field, and we were not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and truly, anybody who would watch the Brady Bunch Variety Hour was probably watching Disney. Oh yes, that, that's I love the documentaries like they especially there's the episode where they show like how he made the animatronics using the people's actual movements. I love that episode. Seeing that '60s technology mixed with what would become futuristic technology, right. which is amazing. Sure. So, so for anybody so out there, what is some advice that you can give that if somebody wants to become a writer or 
you know, be pretty much do what you do as like a comedian or just a writer? If you want to be in comedy, I think the first rule is be funny. Uh, A lot of people are not funny and they think they're funny, uh, but you really do have to be funny. Um, And the second thing to do is you have to be ready to give it away because at the beginning you're going to have to give it away. And you're going to have to be willing to make a lot of other kinds of sacrifices, um, uh, unless you have a very large penis, in which case people will flock, <laughs> or or huge, you know, huge bazooms. They'll they'll flock to you. I mean, that's the first rule of Hollywood. Me too has not been able to stop that. Yes. I mean, it stops it stops the way people take advantage of it, but it doesn't make it go away because it's the oldest profession. So, oh, yes. Just ask Dolly Parton. <laughs> yeah. Hello, I'm working with her now. So hello, exactly. Yes. Right. But yeah, what I would say to performers, particularly, I don't know about writers so much, but performers, I mean, the internet is a gift. I mean, YouTube is a gift. TikTok is a gift. I mean, look at the people who have no talent, who have made millions of dollars by being influencers. Oh, yes. You know? I mean, so if you actually are talented, and you use that as a platform to showcase yourself, I mean, they'll go crazy for you. And that never existed. I mean, you used to have to pound the pavement, you know, to get seen by people. And now, I mean, there are people just trolling the internet looking for the next big thing. So uh, if you're a performer, get out there and do it and and put it on tape and, I mean, you know, give it away. Uh, as a writer, it's, it's still, it's a harder thing, but you can, create written material, which you can then sell uh, as a basis of something else. I mean, many people have written just that they, they'll have a, a, a website and they will write something and then they can sell it to a magazine, to a newspaper, to a syndicate, and it winds up becoming the basis of a, a novel, a movie, a TV show. There, there are lots of, of incidents of that. So it's, I think, I think it's a lot easier now than it used to be. There are a lot more people, the, the internet, there, there are a lot more people who are encouraged who should not be. Yes. Because, you know, they can, well, I, but I have, I created a webisode. I did a web series, you know, it's like, oh, honey, they're, they're so <laughs> sad. They're not going to get you. I mean, you know, if you're talented, it might get you something. But if, you know, if you, you know, if all you have is ambition and money, It'll get you to a certain plateau, but it's not going to get you beyond that. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for coming on. All right, everyone. That's going to be another episode of the Phantom Squad podcast. Would you like to our outro? We also enjoy the madness. Enjoy the madness. Here's a little bonus for you. Bruce couldn't fully remember the joke during the interview, so he allowed me to play this clip of it from YouTube. A sadist. A masochist. A pyromaniac, a zoophiliac, a serial killer, and a necrophiliac are having tea. <laughs> it could happen. And the sadist says, let's find a cat and torture it. And the pyromaniac says, let's find a cat, torture it, set fire to it. And the zoophiliac says, let's find a cat, 
torture it, set fire to it, and fuck it. <laughs> and the serial killer says, let's find a cat, torture it, set fire to it, fuck it, and kill it. And the necrophiliac says, let's find a cat, torture it, set fire to it, fuck it, kill it, and fuck it again. And the masochist says, meow. All right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that little bit of dark humor from Bruce. I know I like a little dark humor in my life. And remember, enjoy the madness, everyone. You are now leaving the Phantom Squad podcast. This podcast is produced by Fandom Punk Productions and is a proud member of the Discussing Network. <laughs> <laughs>